Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again to Four Cents a Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez Gassmeyer, and thank you for rejoining me here uh, on this sixth episode of this mini series in O. Henry holiday season. We're nearing the end of both the life of O. Henry and this mini series. We're nearing the end. And so, uh, let's make this final run-up in this mini-series as good as we possibly can make it. Stick with me. We're going to have some fun. When we last left O'Henry... In the previous episode, his world had been completely turned upside down. He was back from exile in Honduras at Trujillo. His wife, Athol, had passed away. And he had just been convicted for the crime of embezzlement. And he was specifically convicted and sentenced to serve five years in prison. Now, O'Henry, in the end, didn't spend the five years that he was sentenced to spend uh, while in, in prison. As a matter of fact, um, while he was there, he was kind of a model uh, prisoner. We mentioned uh, several episodes back that uh, when he left Greensboro, North Carolina, and came out to Texas, uh, where he spent the majority of his life, he had a trade. He was an early version of a pharmacist. He was a druggist. And so as a result of that training, he was actually able to serve in the prison pharmacy. For the duration of his time in prison, um, that was uh, you know you know if you think of movies like The Shawshank Redemption and how Brooks was in charge of the library and how at first um, the main character of that story, Andy Dufresne, was uh, working down in the washroom. You know that was what O'Henry's situation was, but he had the qualifications to be able to do that, and he did it apparently very well. As it is in prison, all you've got is time. That's all O'Henry had was time. He had time to pay for his debt to society, so to speak, and the rest of the time, you know, between filling prescriptions and filling capsules, He was uh, pretty much bored there, and as Agatha Christie once pointed out, there's nothing like boredom to make you want to write, and that's exactly what happened. 
very much like the six months in Truijo had kind of given birth to Cavies and Kings, his time in prison, his three years in prison, proved to be very fertile uh, time for him to write. And as a matter of fact, some of O'Henry's earliest stories, the ones that he ended up publishing, were written while he was in prison. Um, I speculate that it may have been because of his time while he was in prison, because he was there, that he never used his own name uh, as, a, as a byline. We have to remember that well, Henry's real name was William Sidney Porter, and so because his name was William Sidney Porter and because he was a prisoner, he couldn't ever use that name uh, as, his, as the name he used on his work, as his pen name. So... While he was in prison, he wrote and published many of his earliest short stories. Um, this is in the late 1890s, uh, roughly 1897 or 96 to about 1899, when the name O. Henry appeared uh, on that famous story, Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking, in McClure's magazine. O. Henry eventually did get released from prison for good behavior. Uh, uh, he served three of the five years. So he was able to be released and he paid his debt to society. And because of his time in prison, I assume he wasn't able to go out and become a druggist in the uh, real world again. So instead, he kept writing and he kept publishing uh, kept writing, kept publishing his stories, kept uh, the tales, kept uh, appearing in a lot of New York publications that were subsequently then kind of released and disseminated throughout what was the United States at the time. Uh, and in the meantime, he also looked after his daughter, uh, Margaret. But eventually, O. Henry decided that he could no longer stay in Texas just couldn't for whatever reason um the place had you know the place had been home for him for such a big period of time it had been the setting to a major chunk of his time but eventually uh he decided that he couldn't stay there anymore i think there was a great deal of grief related to this Athol, his his wife um her memory was still just oh so strong to him, so he just had to he had to go, and he ended up leaving the South altogether because when he left, he headed to New York as a way of being closer to, by that point, the major source of his income, which was the publishing houses and the magazines where all his work was appearing. So he eventually headed there, and for the last roughly ten years of his life, this is. 1899, uh, he spent those last 10 years in New York City. And in those last 10 years, he would produce the bulk of the work, 381 of his eventual complete works, to, uh, he, he would write in that last period of his life, just producing one after another after another. Uh, and he put the bulk of it down not only to 
what had happened to him in his life, everything that had happened to him in, his, in Texas, everything that he saw in Honduras, everything that he experienced growing up in Greenboro, in North Greensboro, North Carolina, um, everything led to him becoming the writer known as O. Henry. Um, but I think in the meantime, we'll leave that there and move on to today's story. So stick with me. I think you're going to enjoy this one. We've established in the previous episodes that one of O'Henry's favorite themes was to write about characters who are on the margins of society, whether it's the Cisco Kid or Soapy the Hobo or Jimmy Valentine, the locksmith turned shoe salesman, or any of the characters that he's written about so far. Um, you know, Bill Driscoll and Sam, the two criminals from the cop and, uh, from the ransom of Red Chief, excuse me. Um, he loves writing about these sort of rakish, roguish characters. And it's no different in today's story. Uh, today's story is, is probably the shortest story out of all the stories that I've read to you of O. Henry's published work, and yet, once again, it is completely distilled O'Henry. Um, it is the, it's one of the stories, uh, that, that appears in O'Henry's collection, The Four Million, his famous collection that features a lot of his, uh, stories that he wrote, uh, about life in New York. Um, you know, The Four Million, was at the time that was the total population of New York City. Then, uh, it, it, I'm sure it's a, it's much more now, but that was the total population of New York City then. And O. Henry used that title as a kind of rebuke to the words of some famous wit of the time, saying that in New York City there were only 400 people worth knowing. Oh, Henry thought that that was just wrong and thought that um, it was better to know everybody and that everybody was the four million. Hence the title of the collection and hence why so many of the stories in the collection actually take place in New York City. It was just a, it was a real resource to him. And so for this penultimate story, the story that I decided I was going to read to you tonight is, again, it's the shortest story out of all of the ones. Um, compared to all the other stories that I've read to you, this one only took me about eight minutes to read. In the collected works of O. Henry from which I've been reading for this entire series, it's two bound volumes of his short stories and poems and uh, non-fiction works that have managed to survive uh, him posthumously. Uh, this one is, uh, is not even two pages in length. And when you think back to how quickly O. Henry and how furiously O. Henry was writing some of these stories at the time, I mean, there was a, there was a magazine that he worked for in New York where for a stretch of time he was writing them one short story a week. It was a weekly magazine that came out 
just on the same schedule as the New Yorker or Time does today. And this magazine uh, demanded a short story a week from him, and he produced them. And he was able to produce these tales in such a short period of time. Um, it, 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 it just, it's sometimes kind of staggering how quickly he was able to do that. At the same time, it was, it's, 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 uh, sort of disheartening to young writers today to think that he produced a lot of these stories in less than 24 hours. As time went on, of course, and his demons caught up with him, it took him a lot longer to produce anything of quality, but that he was able to maintain a certain level of output for so long that was so good is so impressive. And this story is no different. The story is titled, After 20 Years. Uh, and it's a very typical O. Henry plot, O. Henry setup. Uh, It's got a New York setting and features two characters who are set to re-meet each other. Twenty years apart, they've been separated, they grew up together, and they've both gone on to kind of seek their fortunes in life. One of them, very similar to a Henry, um, left his home, left New York City to head out west to seek his fortune, and apparently at least by his superficial appearance, has done very well. The other, we're not entirely sure. Um, We believe that he was glued to the city, he believed that New York City was the place to be, and so he kind of became a regular functionary uh, of some kind while he was there and lived out his whole life in that role. Um, At least that's what it appears. Until, but being that this is the No Henry short story, after 20 years doesn't end the way that you think it's going to end. So, I think I shall say no more and simply allow you to experience this story. Again, it's titled After 20 Years from his famous volume of stories, The Four Million. Have a listen. Policemen on the beat moved up the avenue impressively. The impressiveness was habitual and not for show, for spectators were few. The time was barely ten o'clock at night, but chilly gusts of wind with a taste of rain in them had well-nigh depeopled the streets. Trying doors as he went, twirling his club with many intricate and artful movements, turning now and then to cast his watchful eye adown the Pacific thoroughfare, the officer, with his stalwart form and slight swagger, made a fine picture of a guardian of the peace. The vicinity was one that kept early hours. Now and then you might see the lights of a cigar store or of an all-night lounge counter, but the majority of the doors belonged to business places that had long since been closed. When about midway of a certain block, the policeman suddenly slowed his walk. In the doorway of a darkened hardware store, a man leaned with an unlighted cigar in his mouth. As the policeman walked up to him, the man spoke up quickly. It's all right, officer, he said reassuringly. I'm just waiting for a friend. 
It's an appointment made 20 years ago. Sounds a little funny to you, doesn't it? Well, I'll explain if you'd like to make certain it's all straight. About that long ago, there used to be a restaurant where this store stands. Big Joe Brady's Restaurants. Until five years ago, said the policeman, it was torn down then. The man in the doorway struck a match and lit his cigar. The light showed a pale, square-jawed face with keen eyes and a little white scar near his right eyebrow. His scarf pin was a large diamond, oddly set. Twenty years ago tonight, said the man, I dined here at Big Joe Brady's with Jimmy Wells, my best chum and the finest chap in the world. He and I were raised in New York just like two brothers together. I was 18 and Jimmy was 20. The next morning, I was to start for the West to make my fortune. You couldn't have dragged Jimmy out of New York. He thought it was the only place on earth. Well, we agreed that night that we would meet here again exactly 20 years from the date and time, no matter what our conditions might be or from what distance we might have to come. We figured that in 20 years, each of us ought to have our destiny worked out and our fortunes made, whatever they were going to be. It sounds pretty interesting, said the policeman. Rather a long time between meets, though, it seems to me. Haven't you heard from your friends since you left? Well, yes. For a time we corresponded, said the other. But after a year or two, we lost track of each other. You see, the West is a pretty big proposition. And I kept hustling around over it pretty lively. But I know Jimmy will meet me here if he's alive, for he always was the truest, staunchest old chap in the world. He'll never forget. I came a thousand miles to stand in this door tonight, and it's worth it if my old partner turns up. The waiting man pulled out a handsome watch, the lid of it set with small diamonds. Three minutes to ten, he announced. It was exactly ten o'clock when we parted here at the restaurant door. Did pretty well out west, didn't you? asked the policeman. You bet. I hope Jimmy has done half as well. He was a kind of plotter, though, good fellow as he was. I've had to compete with some of the sharpest wits going to get my pile. A man gets to a... You bet. I hope Jimmy has done half as well. He was a kind of plodder, though, good fellow as he was. I've had to compete with some of the sharpest wits going to get my pile. A man gets in a groove in New York. It takes the West to put a razor edge on him. The policeman twirled his club and took a step or two. I'll be on my way. Hope your friend comes around all right. Going to call time on him, Sharp? I should say not, said the other. I'll give him half an hour at least. If Jimmy is alive on earth, he'll be here by that time. So long, officer. Good night, sir, said the policeman, passing on along his beat, trying doors as he went. There was now a fine cold drizzle falling, and the wind had risen from its uncertain puffs into a steady blow. The few foot passengers astir in that quarter hurried dismally and silently along with coat collars turned high and pocketed hands. And in the door of the hardware store, the man who had come a thousand miles to fill an appointment, uncertain almost to absurdity, with the friend of his youth, smoked his cigar and waited. 
About 20 minutes, he waited, and then a tall man in a long overcoat with collar turned up to his ears hurried across from the opposite side of the street. He went directly to the waiting man. Is that you, Bob? He asked doubtfully. Is that you, Jimmy Wells? cried the man in the door. Bless my heart, exclaimed the new arrival, grasping both the other's hands with his own. It's Bob, sure as fate. I was certain I'd find you here if you were still in existence. Well, well, well. Twenty years is a long time. The old restaurant's gone, Bob. I wish it had lasted so we could have another dinner together there. How has the West treated you, old man? Bully, it has given me everything I asked for. You've changed lots, Jimmy. I never thought you were so tall by two or three inches. Oh, I grew a bit after I was twenty. Doing well in New York, Jimmy? Moderately. I have a position in one of the city departments. Come on, Bob. We'll go around to a place I know of and have a good long talk about old times. The two men started up the street, arm in arm. The man from the West, his egotism enlarged by success, was beginning to outline the history of his career. The other, submerged in his overcoat, listened with interest. At the corner stood a drugstore, brilliant with electric lights. When they came into this glare, each of them turned simultaneously to gaze upon the other's face. The man from the West stopped suddenly and released his arm. You're not Jimmy Wells, he snapped. Twenty years is a long time, but not long enough to change a man's nose from a Roman to a pug. It sometimes changes a good man into a bad one, said the tall man. You've been under arrest for ten minutes, Silky Bob. Chicago thinks you may have dropped over our way and wires us she wants to have a chat with you. Going quietly, are you? That's sensible. Now... Before we go to the station, here's a note I was asked to hand to you. You may read it here at the window. It's from Patrolman Wells. The man from the west unfolded the little piece of paper handed him. His hand was steady when he began to read, but it trembled a little by the time he had finished. The note was rather short. Bob, I was at the appointed place on time. When you struck the match to light your cigar, I saw it was the face of the man wanted in Chicago. Somehow I couldn't do it myself, so I went around and got a plain clothesman to do the job. Jimmy. literature there is a genre of writing that we refer to as flash fiction um, I as a writer have attempted to um, practice it myself on several occasions and it's a real challenge basically the the whole point of the endeavor is to be able to write a complete story with a beginning a middle and an end a discernible beginning middle and an end in the briefest possible of segments, in, in as few words as possible. As a matter of fact, um, you're, you should aim to tell the whole story in a thousand words or less. I think it could be argued 
that with a story like After 20 Years, O'Henry proved that he was fully capable of practicing this art form. A lot of writers um, who would follow him, including Ernest Hemingway, would do it as well in Hemingway's famous uh, In Our Time. That story collection, or, or sort of pseudo-novel, uh, as some people have termed it, has these very, very short one-page, two-page, three-page stories that just describe a series of events and tell the whole story of a character in a matter of a few hundred words. Oh, Henry was able to do that. Not only was he able to do that, but he was able to do that in After 20 Years with only small details. I mean, it's very clear when we are reading about this story and we're reading about these two characters that one of them is very much kind of a crook. We can tell he's kind of a crook. Oh, Henry is able to paint this beautiful atmospheric picture of New York at night, 10 o'clock at night, and he's able to reveal so much or imply so much about um, uh, both of these characters. You know, the way he describes um, the uh, apparently villainous character in this story who we don't even realize is like that until the very end, um, the character of Bob, uh, the way he's able to characterize this figure with so few words, you know, the man in the doorway struck a match and lit his cigar, the light showed a pale, square-jawed face with keen eyes and a little white scar on his eyebrow, and how his scarf pin uh, was a diamond that was oddly set. We can already tell that this guy's a little shady. I mean, the fact he's standing in this doorway and is there and he's got this diamond scarf pin and he's got this watch that has diamonds studded in the lid. Uh, he's, he's sketchy. He sounds sketchy. And this is saying a lot because New York City, from what I understand, um, you know, before the city kind of got turned over in the 1970s, was always kind of had a sketchy feel to it, especially Manhattan. Um, you know, in the Times Square, 42nd Street kind of area, it always had a certain filthy ruggedness to it, and that O. Henry is able to capture that and, and imbue this strange character, this character Bob, with all those, with, with that ambiance. Just by describing what he looks like by the light of a match is incredible. I mean, most writers, even the ones who write today with very modern language are not capable of writing a description as succinct as that and are not capable of characterizing a character so thoroughly with so few words um, as he's able to do there. And it's enviable that he's able to do that. But the thing of it is, is that we also don't see... Uh, even despite the kind of sketchiness of this character of Bob, we don't see the end coming because uh, we, you know, we start and we're following this policeman. Uh, we don't even know the policeman's name. Uh, you know, like any good sort of twist, there's a certain amount of information that's withheld from us until the very end. And then when the end finally does come and we discover what's happened, what has transpired, um, we kind of 
our eyes go wide and we're sort of astonished, or maybe we're not so astonished anymore. Um, oh, Henry was writing these twist ending stories at a time when twist endings were still fairly novel. Uh, and so, maybe to us, it's not nearly as remarkable how he's able to sort of lay the groundwork for a twist only to pull the rug out from under us right at the end without us seeing it really coming. Um, I imagine that's, that must be how uh, the writers, the viewers, I should say, of the original Twilight Zone felt when they were watching it and Rod Serling would introduce each episode and, you know, they would... They knew they were entering the Twilight Zone, and if they watched the show long enough, they knew that the gimmick of the show was the fact that the endings were never expecting, expectant. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's there, and you can't even... You didn't even see it coming. You didn't see it coming. Our sophistication has grown to such that um, the craftsmanship of the twist ending is, is sort of meh. We, we don't really care about it all that much. Uh, or, or we, we think we kind of see it coming, uh, and we, we try to pretend that we're not surprised by it. And yet O'Henry was not only able to pull off a twist ending like this, he was able to pull it off in such a confined space and still make it feel like we got the whole story of these two characters who were old friends and were able to learn a great deal about them, about their dynamic and how it's very clear that they were that they were good buddies at one point and how all that changed and O'Henry's able to capture that with that one sentence that's said by one of the characters um, you know 20 years is a long time or two sentences I should say you know 20 years is a long time but not long enough to change a man's nose from a Roman to a pug and then it sometimes changes a good man into a bad one you know sometimes changes a good man into a bad one um, O'Henry acknowledges one of the core truths about the human condition, which is that change is constant, and sometimes it's not all for the better. And he was able to do that so succinctly in one tiny little exchange, and it's all there. Uh, you know, again, like we discussed last time when we were discussing uh, Red Chief, these stories do come out of their own time. They do have their flaws. Uh, stylistically, there are those inconsistencies in, in, in tense, in tone, in, in, in point of view at times. There are those things, but at the same time, you just have to admire them for what he was able to do to get right, that what he was able to do that was great. Um, every diamond has its rough edges, and this is no doubt another example of O. Henry at his best, and O. Henry at his most succinct. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many of the total number of stories that he wrote in the end of his life were that short and that satisfying, but if he was able to do that more than once, um, he is definitely a writer worth taking seriously. He's definitely a writer worth appreciating, even now when we know so much we've experienced so much in terms of storytelling um, that's the marvel that is O'Henry he is a treasure trove of storytelling undoubtedly
Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves. Thank you.